This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production, now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer, Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls, and guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast, every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on PodcastOne.com. It's not what you have. It's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Golliver, national NBA writer for the Washington Post, host of the Greatest of All Talk and Open Floor podcasts, and we have a really good conversation going through some of the wrinkles of the NBA's return to play and also an extended conversation about the players and teams that have the most to gain and the most to lose. Sometimes those are actually the same people, but we got into a lot of different teams, a lot of different players, legacies, free agency, all that kind of fun stuff. So I think you'll really enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Use the Podcast One promo code to get a sign-up bonus and tell them that you came from us. Episode runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of good stuff in here. I think you'll really enjoy it. So here we go. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure as always. Danny, how you doing? Doing pretty well. Can't complain. Can't complain at all. We're uh, Actually, we're recording this on June 30th, so we're hopefully exactly a month away from having basketball again. And I, I wanted to start with just kind of how how from you know you have your you have your finger I get finger on the pulse I guess the phrase that's used here most often you have your finger on the pulse of this far better than I do how are you feeling about the kind of the preparation one month out well um, I guess as good as it can be expected you know I, I think I definitely started getting a little bit shaky or a little bit nervous once we saw the numbers in Florida climbing as quickly as they were. I think trying to put yourself in the position of the decision makers, whether it's the the Players Association or the NBA itself, and realizing that you're in this extended negotiation for weeks and weeks trying to pin down um, all the specifics of the return to play. And then all of a sudden, the, the facts on the ground in Florida just changed drastically, and there's a significantly higher risk down there than there was when they started those negotiations. That really would have spooked me. But it seems to me like they're uh, you know, continuing forward with their current plan. Uh, there has been, obviously, a few teams really hit by multiple tests. Uh, that could, you know, change their uh, roster availability in, in the case of the Brooklyn Nets, of course, um, and maybe some other teams too. But by and large, it seems like the 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 uh, the train is leaving the station. And when you look at that first week of games, I mean, I don't know about you. It's been so long since we've watched basketball. I mean, just the idea of getting to watch Zion followed up by LeBron and Kawhi on opening night and then getting, you know, Tatum versus Giannis on night two. 
uh, Luca versus Harden. I mean, all these different matchups, it just kind of got my blood going a little bit. I was you know, starting to get excited. You fast forward a few days and it's Giannis versus Harden, you know, after all that trash talk that occurred over All-Star Weekend and all the storylines start to ramp back up. So, I mean, of course, it, you know, it's been a crazy summer with the social justice protests, with the pandemic that's just not slowing down whatsoever. Um, but, you know, just to even get back into this basketball mentality has been uh, has been somewhat refreshing. Agreed. And yeah, thinking about, you know, I, I, this week, Nate and I did a little bit on kind of thinking, gaming out the schedules and the seating. And that's just exciting. You know, it's like, oh, we can actually talk about think about basketball. And yeah, it's going to be different for a bunch of different reasons. But the having that to potentially look forward to is incredibly exciting. And also, I mean, there is this element of, of uncertainty with, you know, who's going to be available. And we've already seen, I mean, we saw the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn guys pull out on Monday, but what I'm very interested in kind of from that perspective is that we still do have this month. And I think that was, you know, it was important to get the early rounds of testing now because hopefully, I mean, and we'll have to see, you know, we're still learning a lot about, about this virus and how people recover, but hopefully if they caught it early with people, the concern is going to be if in two weeks and three weeks, if there are still some positive tests, then it becomes a larger problem. But if it's, can he be kind of found now those players get quarantined and and yeah there there will absolutely be some effects on it because the players are let's say they're sitting out for two weeks right now even though that means they might not technically miss games except for in the cases of like Dinwiddie and and DeAndre Jordan where they pulled out there will still be effects you know you don't get the full ability to ramp up and we've seen that a lot of players have not been in the you know they haven't they they were talking on the our Patreon mailbag yesterday about how this is different than an offseason because yeah the players are getting more rest but they're also not on their normal rhythm in terms of working out and doing everything else. So it's going to be fascinating to see what a layoff that doesn't have the normal off-season structure means to these players. Yeah, I mean, I'm expecting the basketball to be ugly. I'm expecting guys not to really be in full, you know, peak condition. I'm expecting the chemistry to really take a while to ramp back up. Um, You know, if you just think about what basketball normally looks like in October, it's not always great. And now you're having guys who probably aren't even going to be in as good of shape as they usually are. So I'm anticipating kind of choppy, uh, you know, ugly kind of play there. And I'm also, you know, keeping an eye out for just how much different teams' hearts are in it. I mean, you look with Brooklyn and and having so many different guys, um, you know, not, not participating for various reasons. You know, it's a real commitment on these guys' lives. And if you're going down to Orlando, you're going through a multiple-week quarantine process or ramp-up training camp type process before you even play. And then once the games start, you're playing those eight regular season games. And then you're going into a playoff series against a team that's significantly better than you. You know, imagine these teams as like seven or eight seeds. They don't have a ton to play for. And it's a major commitment on their life. I just wonder if we're going to get into some of these series where, you know, usually like game three, the underdog punches back when they get back at home. I wonder if there's going to be some of those uh, those lopsided series just getting done really quickly because teams decide to, you know, more or less roll over. Not necessarily intentionally, but just kind of subconsciously because of all the outside factors. So that's one thing that I'm looking for as well. I think when you're looking at this NBA plan, though, the strongest part of this entire plan to me is actually sort of 
the onboarding process down there in Orlando. I mean, they're taking, you know, chartered flights that are with everybody who's going to have tested, uh, you know, negative. They're going to be, you know, taking a bus straight to Disney World. So there's no stops or anything like that. Um, that part sounds very secure. They're going to go through that in-room quarantine process, which, you know, all the doctors say was like a really smart and well-designed step. So if they get everybody out of this opening, you know, phase here, you know, testing negative, as you've described, you know, sort of getting through the the symptoms and, and heading down to Florida in a good place. I'm actually pretty confident that they're going to be able to launch. OK, my biggest questions come in is, you know, will guys stick to the bubble plan? Right. <laughs> After you've been in there for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, is there a temptation to try to leave, to try to bend the rules? Maybe you don't bring your mask every single place anymore. You know, do some of those habits that are really helpful start to slip? And then is that is is that where there's a problem? But for me, I'm actually feeling pretty good. If they can get everybody to Florida, I feel like they're going to be able to get to opening night just fine. I largely agree. And you brought it. I'm going to combine two different things that you said into one of my concerns, which is. Um, will the players, once it looks like they're kind of done, will they have any temptation to, to, to break the rules? So you brought up, you know, the Brooklyn Nets. I think on the court, the Nets actually are maybe a, a test of the other side of this, which is because their established players aren't playing, that they will have more guys that are really trying to get a contract for next year. And, and they'll be more motivated than the, let's say, the not to single him out for any other reason other than structural, the Bradley Beals of the world, where Bradley Beal, one of his best teammates, Davis Bertans, made the correct decision, in my opinion, to not play. And the Wizards aren't aren't going to be very good. And so he's probably just there for a, you know, let's say a four week, a four week little thing as they finish out the regular season, maybe even three weeks as they finish out the regular season and then probably don't have a playing game. So do those players take it super seriously because they know it's a shortened timeline or do they get a little bit tempted to say, Hey, like, why am I, why am I going through this? Like these limitations when I'm, you know, I'm not getting much for it other than, I mean, they're increasing their, their contracts and the contracts of their brethren. No, for sure. And I think that we'll see how teams manage their players too, right? Like if you're on the outside looking in, if you're Phoenix or Washington um, or San Antonio and you lose your first two games, right? So you're almost mathematically eliminated. Do you just shut down all of your good players and send them home? You know, if I was an organization, I would think strongly about that, especially if I knew my guy was going back home to like a safe environment, if he knew the rules about, um, you know, distancing and, and masks and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it would be pretty tempting to, uh, to handle things it's almost like a summer league right where you right. have your first your, your first couple of games you're playing all your lottery guys and after that you're shutting them down i could see teams um handling that uh, you know that way for sure i also wonder about these playing games danny because on paper they sound great right it's something that people have been hyping up for like you know five ten years of a way to generate more interest in the playoffs and everybody you know they're going to claim the eighth seed right but think about it. I mean, if you're a player and option one is staying in a bubble for another two weeks to get your <laughs> butt kicked by Giannis and option B is you get to go home and be with your wife and your kids and, uh, you know, all and of not that is be, going and to, not be in a bubble. Right. And not be in the bubble and be able to you know live your life more freely and everything else. Um, you know, that that's a pretty clear choice. You know, that's you're really weighing a lot of different factors and it's all coming down to one or potentially two games right there in that playoff format. So. I'm not suggesting we're going to see guys, you know, it's going to be like a final score of like 50 to 42 because nobody wants to score. I just wonder what the motivation level, because
because in my mind, when I picture play in games, it's like that uh, end of season game we got a couple of years ago, right? Where it was like the, what was the Nuggets versus the Timberwolves, right? Yeah. Where they're like fighting for that last eight seed. And it was one of the best games that we'd all ever seen for the entire regular season. I'm not sure that's going to be the vibe. In an it, instead of being gym. like that Blazers Kings game. <laughs> where it seemed like both teams kind of didn't want to win except for was that Anthony Simons who actually played pretty well it was like you know, one of those weird ones but yeah I mean that gets into this this idea that I hadn't thought about this before but people bring up tanking in a lot of different circumstances and and what I've generally said is organizations tank coaches and players broadly speaking do not there are some specific exceptions the Mark Madsen game is, is a frequently brought up one and justifiably so this could be the way it goes on the other side is that the organization is you know that's still like in the playing games particularly like yeah it's better it's better for them though i don't know how the revenue splits are working it's not the same incentives as in a like in a normal season where getting an extra two or three playoff games actually makes a a decent difference to ownership's bottom line but for the players you're right i mean winning those playing games buys you probably another two weeks in the bubble and more of a chance of injury more of a chance in the bubble and not a lot of upside potential because facing presumably the Lakers or the Bucks, where you'd be heavy, heavy underdogs. And so I think there's some part of it that, you know, there are certain players who structurally, you know, they'll maybe they're they'll have a greater incentive. They want to get known. They want to do everything like that. But the, you know, the Damian Lillards of the world or the Bradley Beals of the world who they don't need the rep boost. They're 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 fine. They're they're good on that. And I, I, that is a very interesting thought that I hadn't really put much time in. Well, the other interesting one, and you guys would know this better than uh, I would, but just the from the financial standpoint, you know, if you're going into Orlando expecting, like, if you're in uh, impending free agent wanting a huge payday, what is that payday even going to look like? You know what I mean? Uh, oh, this it's, coming it's not. Summer. It's not going to be very good because they're so. I've been using, and I wrote a piece for The Athletic about this about a month ago, I've been using a 109, so basically an exact carbon copy of this year's cap, as a rough estimate of where they were going to do it, partially because there's a big risk taking it too low, either for escrow reasons or just because, you know, but you get, there are a bunch of different logistical things that could be challenging there, and... Let's say it's 109. There just aren't, first of all, there are not many teams with cap space. But then the other ripple effect of that, though this could be collectively bargained differently, is that that's a lower luxury tax line than was anticipated with the 115 million cap, which was the NBA's most recent official projection. They haven't released one otherwise, partially because this is probably isn't going to be based on BRI, on basketball related income, because that's so different. And you don't necessarily want to do that when it's non representative. So. You're right. I think that there are a bunch of players, like the the group that I think should be most scared, I've brought up Danilo Gallinari here before, are players who are pretty clearly worth more than the mid-level exception. You could use 9 to 10 million as a rough proxy there, but are not max players. Because generally speaking, max players are going to get paid. Like Brandon Ingram is getting his money. They'll, they'll, whatever happens, there will be a way that Brandon Ingram gets his 25% max contract. However, that is not true for the Gallinari's, Serge Ibaka, maybe Christian Wood. I don't think of him quite at that caliber. But, you know, basically, if you think you're worth more than $10 million but not a max player, good luck. That's going to be a real challenge. 
For sure. And that's that's kind of what I'm meeting when we're talking about, OK, who are we expecting to kind of step up and take this uh, this tournament seriously? Like you could imagine some of those mid-level free agent guys thinking, hey, if I go there, maybe I could double my salary. That money probably won't be available. So how does that change guys incentives in terms of how hard are they playing? Are they thinking, hey, if I just have a respectable showing here and come back, have a good uh, uh, year next year, maybe I can get paid the following year. Um, does it make people treat injuries more cautiously, right? If you sprain an ankle in the first game, do you decide, well, you know, it wasn't my day. I'm just going to withdraw, sort of like we saw a lot of guys withdraw from that FIBA World Cup team uh, last summer. I think those kinds of questions are going to have to be on the table, and we just don't know. Um, at the same time, kind of looking looming over all of this, I do think is the social justice issue. And I think for the really big stars, that actually adds more motivation, right? It does. I mean, ima- imagine the type of message that LeBron can send, like the first game out opening night, if he puts up 40 with Black Lives Matter on the court, he's wearing a slogan on his jersey, like uh, they're reportedly going to allow the players to do. Uh, he's able to go on the postgame uh, podium and talk for half an hour about basically whatever he wants to talk about. There could be a lot of eyeballs on that night, right? And it could be something that, that dominates the discourse for 72 hour news cycle because there's no other real sports going on and because he's LeBron. So, you know, to me, I I think that there are real positives and also possibly real negatives, uh, you know, in terms of how seriously guys want to take this. And it it transfers to their legacies too. Obviously anyone who wins this title, it's going to be viewed a little bit differently, I think than any other championship, but ultimately for the superstar level guys, every ring matters so much. And I think they're going to be going to Orlando with that same mindset. Right. And the other kind of thread there that I think is is worth pulling on a little bit is the idea of what could be the haves and the have-nots. You brought up in terms of individual players, like the platforms that players have, but even smaller ones. I mean, like the the eyeballs that are going to be on these games, even if they're, you know, weekday, midday games, there are probably still going to be a lot more people just because of the structure of everybody's lives right now, and people are going to want some sort of distraction. So we could see, we could see more there in terms of local markets, but also the national games. So there's, but then for the halves, for the best players and the best teams, there is a lot on the line because even if this is quote unquote a lesser championship, I I just opined a little bit ago on the Patreon one about, um, I don't think there's an asterisk for this or anything else, barring the something crazy unforeseen. But even if it's like a reduced championship, it's still a championship and no matter what, it is an opportunity that will that will be gone functionally once it's over. So, especially LeBron James, he's you know thirty five, turning thirty six this December. He probably doesn't have that many more chances. Even if this is considered a diminished championship, it's still a championship, and it's still an opportunity to build his legacy. Anthony Davis has more time, but you can think about how many opportunities is he going to have to play with LeBron, and that there's a lot there, and also because time is passing no matter what happens here. And I think about that in the context of the ridiculous 2021 free agent class, likely headlined by Giannis, but there are a lot of different guys that could be in that class. Remember Kawhi Leonard and Paul George have player options. I believe like you have you, the LA guys, the, the Lakers guys could end up like we could see Anthony Davis choose some sort of option where he has flexibility for 2021. Not that I expect him to leave, but you get into that. And so even if this season isn't what those players expected it to be. And I mean, we all know that it still is a piece of information that they will be considering when 
planning when evaluating their next move. And I'm fascinated because of this pos- how this fits in. So like 2020 free agent class, not super inspiring. And some of the best players in it are uh, are restricted free agents, so we don't expect them to go anywhere. But Giannis only has two off-seasons before he could be an unrestricted free agent, one of which is this, and then that's the only thing between now and when he can decide on the designated veteran contract. So whether it's representative or not, it is an important informational piece in those players' decisions. Well, not only for their like contractual futures or their, their decisions, but also uh, their perceptions as yes. players right so i think a guy for like lebron for example i think if he wins this title it's his uh you know it's basically his fourth ring with a third different franchise i think there will be less uh nitpickers for him same deal with Kawhi, by the way if he wins his third title with the third franchise i think people will say you know he, he he's the best player in the sport i think that would be the conversation coming out of it but for a guy like Giannis, who's never won previously and who hit the wall in the playoffs last year I wonder what will the perception be if if Milwaukee wins? Will there be more asterisk talk in that kind of a situation? And it's not just picking on Milwaukee. I would say the same thing about Denver with Jokic or even Houston with Harden. And and some of these things too, it it translates to the organization. While I think Kawhi would get credit for the title, do the Clippers get credit for the title, right? I mean, because they've been this kind of cursed franchise and they're pulling out all the stops and then the one year they're actually able to uh, to do it is the year where it's played an empty gym in Orlando and you probably can't even hold a championship parade afterwards. And, uh, you know, they, they go all in uh, for Kawhi and, and Paul George last summer. And let's say they don't win. And, and that that time that they've lost that you're describing winds up being so much more important because this year was so critical to all of the logic that drove how many picks they gave away for Paul George and, and the other kinds of uh you know, fairly risky moves they made in the short term to put this team together. I mean, all these perception questions are going to be, you know, raised even more as we get closer to the games uh, in Orlando. And then again, there's going to be another round of those same questions if they're not able to finish th- this thing off and crown a champion, right? Because all of them wind up just getting thrown up in the air. And, uh, you know, the questions about Giannis's free agency get more intense. The questions about the Clippers long-term planning get more intense. The question about LeBron's age uh, becomes more intense. So I think there's just major stakes here for all of the, the leading contenders uh, as we get closer. Agreed. And that gets into something that I wanted, like kind of a framing that I wanted to get in. I thought you'd be a really good guest for this. We can do individuals, we can do teams, and it's not going to be, you know, we can go in different kind of different gradients here. But, and, and there will be repeats, but like thinking about who and which teams have the most to gain from the start of, you know, from a month from now to the end of the, the end of Orlando, whatever that is, and who has the most to lose We'll start on the gain side. Like, what what stands out to you in terms of like what players and teams really have a lot that can come from this? Well, you know, one team that I've thought of as you know a potential kind of like quote unquote winner here is actually the Raptors because I think first of all they already were in this season as a team that had nothing to lose. Right? You're like you're the champion, but you're also an underdog, and that works out very well. They had injury issues all year. They had Gasol coming off the playoff run and the the FIBA World Cup run. So I was kind of always anticipating maybe he winds up running out of gas at certain points. They've got a bunch of veterans in that same spot. But we know they're a team that has excellent chemistry, that's very versatile. 
that has a smart coach and that, um, you know, it has played a lot together. You know, they have shared reps going back all the way to last year's title team. So to me, you give them that layoff. I think that not only does it give guys like Assault to get into incredible shape, which he has, but it also, you know, sets them up for success because I think they're going to be able to put their chemistry and, uh, camaraderie back together more quickly than other teams and if they're in a situation where everybody wrote them out to start last season you know wrote them off and basically said hey you know you got no shot at winning the title and they wind up getting themselves back into the finals or somehow winning this thing uh, which I think is a, a more likely scenario now than it was you know back in April May June then what more winning could a team like that expect? I think it's almost like falling into their lap. It's kind of a gift from the the basketball gods in a weird way. So to me, I look at them uh, as a real potential winner. And I guess the Clippers too, to a certain degree, because Paul George was nursing injuries. Sham had had some injuries earlier in the season. Um, They had not really pulled things together completely from a health standpoint. And now they've got all this extra time to um, rest and recuperate. And then we know that they're super deep. I mean, they, they did a, a lot of work on their roster around the edges during the season to add rotation pieces. And I think depth is going to be really, really important, um, you know, heading into Orlando because of the possibility of freak injuries or illness, of course, you know, infection. So, you know, from that standpoint, I look at those two teams as, as possible winners here. Uh, but where do you come down? I really like that you brought up Toronto because I think you're right that they have they have a lot to gain. Also, remember that if they're theoretically in the Giannis Derby, they're not even just by theoretically beating the Bucks in a series, but just by performing well. And Giannis is going to get to see their team camaraderie very close on in a way that team that players generally do not get to see with potential teammates because you're traveling in your own circles. You know that that's just how it works. Maybe in a playoff series you can see that. And of course Giannis did with the with the see the Raptors last year in that same circumstance. But Orlando is going to be a different lens to me into how coaches coach, how personality relate, because they're going to be all in the same place. And so I think there could be this it could be the Ultimate, you know, we've talked. There have been stories for years going back to, you know, like how the how Miami's group formed and the the 2010 FIBA stuff for the for the I believe that was 2010 for the Warriors, you know, kind of setting the table for that with some of those guys building relationships, and that might have been 14. And I, I think that there will be some of that all over the place. And Toronto seems like a logical beneficiary of that of, of the kind of like peripheral appreciation that they could get there. And the other reason why Toronto stands out to me is the lack of downside. I'm sure that Raptors fans and and management would be disappointed if, let's say, they fall to the Celtics in the second round. Like, yeah, sure, that would be very disappointing. But when it comes on the heels of a championship and they they, they had an unambiguously successful season, I don't think that would be crushing in any way, shape, or form. I don't think it would affect their ability to get free agents in the future or anything like that. So they, to me, and remember the Raptors, assuming they get the two, which I fully expect them to do in after the seeding games, they're going to be facing a weak opponent. Like we know that right now the seven and eight in the East are significantly weaker than the one through six. And so they're, they're, you know, so as long as they don't just like totally lose it in the first round, I think that everything else is fine and it could end up being amazing. Like you get, you get that. And so I think that's a really good circumstance to bring up. Plenty more to talk about with Ben Golliver, but first message from Bet Online. There is no shortage of action going on with our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Sports are slowly making their way back with UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and soccer leading the way. And Bet Online has all the best odds and lines for the upcoming games and matches. 
So go to Bet Online and use the Podcast One promo code to both tell them that you came from us and to get an awesome sign-up bonus. So if you need more, Bet Online has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening every day live for you to check out. And if you're looking for something else other than sports, Bet Online has hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. So visit Bet Online, the website, or use your mobile device and join now to receive your new welcome bonus with the Podcast One promo code and start playing today at Bet Online, your online wagering experts. The Clippers have more downside, obviously, because they don't know, we don't know how long they have this group together, but you're right that they have a lot of upside. And I like your idea of depth and, and something else that I, I think could be useful for the Clippers. I don't know this for sure, but could be is that they have a lot of players who are very different from one another, and they have a good coach. So there will be times when Zubats is the right player to be at center. There are times that it'll be Montrez Harrell. There are times that it's going to be actually Jermichael Green, and you go a smaller, switchier lineup. And there aren't that many teams in the current NBA that can really to not be chameleons like the Clippers aren't changing everything I mean it, this is a team with Kawhi Leonard on it especially offensively I think we have a pretty good idea when he's on the floor of what they're going to look like but the idea of having Lou Williams having Shamit, having a lot of having offensive bigs and defensive bigs is that some days you're going to need a little bit more offensive juice some days you're going to need somebody to stabilize the fort defensively and to have them all be players that Doc Rivers trusts is a luxury that a lot of other teams don't have. And I, I mean, as as good as the Bucks are, and they have, you know, they've, they've added Wes Matthews and, and Robin Lopez, but that was something that I've thought about them, and Marvin Williams actually could end up being huge for them for this, is like, I'm interested in the teams, the Sixers are another one here, where it's like, when things aren't working, do do the co- does the coach have other things that they can turn to? And the Clippers pretty clearly do. The Bucks hopefully do, but then maybe the Sixers just don't really, and that could be a problem for Brett Brown. Yeah, I mean, the, the Sixers are an interesting case for me because they're clear winners. They get Simmons back healthy, right? Yes. So if well, they were and, going back— And Embiid, I'm guessing—I mean, he's always dealing with stuff. I, I'm hoping that he'll be healthier than normal. For sure, and that's like a nice layoff, and I think that you know being fresh heading into the this postseason is a huge deal, even for guys like LeBron, right? I mean, he was carrying a pretty big load during the regular season to give him four months to rest. And all he's got to do is burst through, you know, two, three months to a title. I mean, that sounds pretty good for him, I'm sure. So Philly wins on that way. But I also feel like this Orlando scenario winds up being like the ultimate chemistry test, the ultimate interpersonality test, right? Like after a tough playoff loss, your guys can't go their separate ways and kind of stew like they normally would um, and kind of get over it and then regroup for the next game. They're all going back on the same bus to go shower in their hotel rooms and you know get their meals from the same little uh, uh, you know grab and grow, go type uh, dispenser, and they're they're stuck spending all sorts of time around each other. If you don't have genuine positive relationships between your key guys, I think it's going to come out and it's going to show down there in Orlando even more than it normally would during the playoffs. And we see teams every single year crack because they're not aligned, right? In terms of personality, who should get the last shot late? Are we going to make the extra rotation defensively and everything else? And so for a team like Philly that was so boom and bust all year, and there's just so many questions, just do these guys like each other? Do they want to play for Brett Brown? All they are, are they all on the same page? To me, those questions get magnified down there in Orlando. So uh, while Philly's like a clear winner from the health standpoint, I wonder if some of these other factors wind up making them uh, a net loser. Um, it's, it's hard to say. 
the lack of cooling off places and and you know even just the normal people you usually vent to in person you know like that maybe they could do phone calls and everything like that but it's i think that the support structures and are going to be so different that it will take some players especially when you go through hard times which almost everybody does in the playoffs you know lose a game you thought you shouldn't have maybe you miss a shot maybe you just have a bad game and your team still wins and you you can't especially in the early rounds you don't have your your wife or your girlfriend or your kids or whatever, whatever usually like gives you that stability, not having that in place is going to be really hard. And players spend a lot of time and a lot of energy to get those things in place. And there are lots of different, it it can take plenty of different forms and it's not going to be there. And so that is a really interesting point to think about with this. And yeah, the, the interpersonal, I mean, it's going to be stressful. You don't have as many places to go. And will how will they re, how will they respond to that? The coaching challenge of this is going to be fascinating, and I mean, especially in certain cases with older coaches, there's the concerns about COVID and everything else. But yeah, I'm I'm really interested in that, and that brings me to another team that I think is fascinating, which is Houston. And so Houston, yeah, they have plenty of upside. We haven't really gotten to see this Maury-led revolution fully realized. I mean, we saw a little bit with Covington after the trade deadline, and it looked quite good. I, th- I think it looked really good. But the Rockets have, they have kind of two big things. One is this team is going to continue being expensive, you know, being on the fringes. They would have been a luxury tax team the last couple of years if Tillman Fertitta wanted to. But then there's also the Mike D'Antoni factor here. And D'Antoni will be a coaching free agent after Orlando. And if the, if the Rockets do well, that's extra that's extra incentive for him he can say give me more money give me longer term security or maybe he's just going to say i'm sick of this and i'd rather just be on be coaching another team for my last couple years you know maybe maybe he wants a rebuilding situation doesn't want to deal with this and so i'm really interested because houston's roster seems stable though that's never true with a daryl morey team it I'm really interested in the Mike D'Antoni element of their of this beyond all the on court fascination with the Rockets. No, that was a great point because I hate like just being in limbo. It's like one of the you know I just my brain just rejects it. I always just want to have certainty. And D'Antoni's been in limbo all season. His entire roster changes. Then he has to sit around for multiple extra months without a decision on his future. Right, and now he's got to worry about his own potentially increased risk of COVID as you go down there. And theoretically, you're kind of coaching for your job or maybe um, because your owner is going to the White House to beg for PPP money, um, you know, like maybe you're not coaching for your job. Maybe you're already going a different direction. I mean, who knows? It's just a very complex and and complicated situation. And it's one I think that Tillman Fertitta has made even more complicated with a lot of his statements here over the last month or two, not necessarily about D'Antoni specifically, but just about the financial you know, st- state of the Rockets, where they stand, um, you know, him bringing up, you know, James Harden or Russell Westbrook's salaries to the president of the United States, um, you know, in a meeting. I mean, to me, it is very uh, a lot of red flags, I guess, around that organization right now. I will give them this, though, Danny. I don't know if you agree. You know, we're talking about all the offensive struggles and, ke- and uh, you know, just offensive chemistry issues that could arise for various teams. The fact that Harden plays five on five all year round, that so much of the offense runs through him, that he's such a reliable generator for himself and his teammates, that he doesn't need to you know worry about five crisp passes to get a good shot because he can get a good shot on basically every possession or get himself to the free throw line. And that, you know, D'Antoni always just kind of jokes, oh, all I do is roll the ball out there. It's just James's offense anyways. 
I mean, that's the kind of approach that you would think would actually work pretty well here uh, in the bubble, at least in the early going, right, where other teams are trying to get up to speed. Uh, you know, having that kind of weapon that you can turn to and bail you out, I feel like is a real advantage for Houston. So on some of the on-court stuff, I actually view them almost as winners, whereas a lot of the off-court stuff, I view them more as losers. An excellent point. And it's not only a simple offense, but the Rockets' defense is pretty straightforward, too. I mean, especially now that they've switched, they, they, they've retained a lot of the switch principles from, you know, Jeff Pizdelic, and now they have smaller lineups. And it, it, there are challenges because they have less rim protection now and, you know, help defense responsibilities are falling on a smaller number of people. What concerns me about the Rockets is that when they're healthy and when it's working, I think they'll do really well. But remember that top-heavy teams can be a challenge in uncertain circumstances because all it takes is something small to derail them. So, like, it's not even like a Harden or a Russ thing necessarily because, I mean, depending on what kind of shape Harden's in. But I think from what I've heard, it sounds like Kelly Eco had that piece a little while ago. It seems like he'll be pretty good. But, like, if P.J. Tucker has a soft tissue injury, they're probably screwed. Like, if, if it can be—it doesn't have to be—I mean, Eric Gordon, I think his his health problems this year have been a real challenge for them. Covington is now an intensely important part of it. And that means that it goes along with what you were saying, that, like, when it works, I think it's going to work really, really well. But when it doesn't, especially if it's health-related, I, I worry about—I worry that they have less— that they're less stable, that they're less rock solid. And so a team like the Clippers where, yeah, if, if Kawhi or Paul George gets hurt, they're going to have big problems. But if Lou Williams ha- misses a week, they can they can make do. They can go in other directions. Whereas the equivalent of that on Houston, if they're out, they don't really have a good replacement on roster. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm with you on all that. I mean, I, I felt that way even before this whole shutdown where if, if Tucker or Covington missed any stretch of time, um, then they were just toast. And I think that's even more true now. Um, and again, the depth thing is part of the reason why I'm higher on the Clippers and the Raptors too, by the way. You know, the Raptors have a lot of different guys they can plug in and, and get minutes out of. Um, you know, one team that we haven't talked about here is Milwaukee. I kind of view them as maybe the biggest losers of all of this just because they had the most to lose. I thought even though they had that short losing streak right before the shutdown because Giannis got injured, their chemistry and they were just clicking on all cylinders. And they're the type of team where you wouldn't want any interruption. You know, they were just smacking teams left and right, leaving a lot of teams for dead. Nobody had answers for Giannis. He was in a great mind state um, and just super, super, super consistent. They didn't have to run his minutes up. I mean, everything was lining up perfectly for them to enter the playoffs in rhythm with Giannis pretty well rested against a very easy first round opponent with a very strong home court advantage. I believe they had the best home court record in the East, if not the entire league. Um, so just everything was lining up for them. And this was also a time of, you know, very intense pressure. They have to make the finals this year, right? They have to show Giannis progress. And to me, they were lining up for, you know, possibly 12 and two, 12 and three run through the Eastern conference. You know, I was, I was kind of feeling that bullish about them. Now they have to play on the neutral site. They have to get their chemistry back together after so much time off. Um, they have to, hope that they're able to get the same type of whistle for a guy like Giannis in the empty gym compared to, uh, you know, with the home crowd in Milwaukee. They have to worry that, you know, Toronto or Boston, who were legitimate threats beforehand, you know, could potentially be even more legitimate threats down there. And more than anything, they just have to get the magic back in the bottle. And that's tricky. And um, so I think from that standpoint, uh, I view them arguably as the biggest losers. Now, I do think making a move like Marvin Williams 
I liked it at the time, and I like it even more now because uh, you know that's a guy where if you're a veteran who's you know just got a lot of reps, you know how to fit in, you know the game, you're smart, you're ego free. Like those players in this Orlando environment to me are going to be worth their weight in gold because uh, you know at some point you're just going to need to be able to throw those guys out and uh, you know play some real significant minutes and and I think that. You know, I, I would I would rather trust the expertise and the experience as compared to the youth and the talent in this particular format, just because um, everyone's going to be adjusting on the fly. Agreed. And I, I like you. I think the Marvin Williams signing will work out even better for Milwaukee on, on this structure than others. Also, because it gives them another look, they could theoretically play Marvin at the four and play Giannis at the five if the if the approach with Brooke Lopez isn't working in that specific moment or against that specific opponent. And the other reason Milwaukee has has real downside here is that anything less than making the finals and arguably anything less than winning the finals is a disappointment. And adding a bunch of randomness, adding a bunch of variance, both from the lack of home court to not having some of the travel advantages, because usually top seeds travel less just because of the structure of how the playoffs work, um, you know, especially if they can get like gentleman sweeps or things like that. And now nobody's traveling at all. And that everybody's kind of coming out of rhythm, I think that that hurts them a lot. And so, hey, Danny, there, there's one more I want to add to that list, and sure. I, I am curious where you come down on it. The, the idea of the three point shot, right? So usually guys are shooting better, or at least role players uh, shooting better at home than on the road. You're now everybody's on the neutral site. So how does that impact your offense? The Bucks are just like unusually leveraged on the three pointers, both offensively and defensively, right? Like they, it's all about drive and kick. Giannis sets it up to their shooters. Are their shooters going to be able to come through as well in Orlando as they do back home in Milwaukee when they're going to be playing with home court advantage in a normal situation um, through basically the entire playoffs? And then defensively, when they're making their calculations of we're going to give up three pointers because we just want to take away the paint, you know, take away the basket area, you know, that sounds all well and good, but now are they going to get into a situation where the the formula changes and other teams are able to hit a higher percentage of three pointers because they're at the neutral site rather than being forced to play on the road against Milwaukee? I mean, to me, I think it feels like the math changes for them on both sides, doesn't it? It does. And I'm very cognizant of the idea also that it's probable, I don't know this for sure, that the arenas they're going to play in Orlando don't have typical sight lines like that. that it, and, and we know it's going to feel different because there aren't going to be fans there. Like, remember, this was a possibility for the NBA before the hiatus, but then things moved so quickly that we never got to see it. So it could be that just the rhythm of everything, the like where you're looking feels so different that guys have, maybe they have some trouble shooting in the corners and maybe that, or above the break, it just feels different. And that could help Milwaukee. That could hurt Milwaukee. Um, I, I The analogy that I've drawn is college players going from their normal arenas to the early rounds of the NCAA tournament to playing in football stadiums. And a lot of times that first, the, those first final four games, the, the ones that are, you know, the, the round of four are often really bad shooting games because they're just not used to it yet. And you can, and this will be different because they're playing in the same places for a lot longer. So hopefully they can calibrate by the time the game start, but you're right. That could be, that is another wrinkle in this that I, so there are a lot of things, and I'm sure you've been dealing with this challenge too, of things that we think will matter, but we don't know exactly how it's going to matter. 
And I think three-point shooting is a great one to bring up. Yeah, on the crowd point, I think a team that winds up losing maybe more than any other on that one specifically is the Lakers. Yes. Not only because they had a great crowd all season long, but they haven't been in the playoffs forever. So I was just anticipating that Staples Center is kind of turning into a cauldron once they got back into the playoffs officially. You know, everybody just, you know, really ready to ramp up and and, and make a, a push for the first time in basically a decade, right? Well, in terms and, of a, re- and a real meaningful push. And remember the emotional push. elements in terms of Kobe Bryant's passing too. Like you had, you had this, the, beyond the normal groundswell, you had this even larger, like a franchise figure, like just like centerpiece that, that pa- tragically passed away this league year. And that, th- that, that could uh, be it. And it's a just- thousand percent, a thousand percent. And then on top of that, they were going to have basically seven home games against the Clippers, right? <laughs> uh, because we know how those fan bases show up in relative terms. Now they wind up having seven neutral side games with no crowd potentially against the Clippers. That is like probably the biggest swing of any, you know, a two team matchup that we're going to see in the entire postseason if that's how it shakes out, right? So, um, you know, there's no question. Uh, you know, it, it's a factor. And LeBron brought that up too, by the way, before the, uh, the coronavirus shutdown, he's like, you know, why do we even play the games without the fans? You know, I, I play for the crowd. Um, I love that sentiment from him because it's, it's sort of, it was true, right? It was in his heart. And that's what he wanted to express. I think when he said it, he didn't totally realize how serious the coronavirus was going to actually be. But for a player like that, who regularly plays to the celebrities at Staples Center, you know, he points out, uh, you know, actors or rappers, or whoever might be sitting courtside to now be in this very sterile gymnasium where you're trying to motivate yourself rather than looking to the crowd for external motivation and you can't count on you know the 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 thunderous cheers for your dunks or if you get a team on a you know a 15-0 run you can't count on that crowd to you know urge you along to to finish it off it's going to be tricky man it's going to be much different i feel like they uh they're going to bear the brunt of that more than any other team I agree. And the specific dynamic with the Clippers is such an important one, one that you know well. And that was, to me, looking like a significant advantage for the Lakers, and that's largely out the window now. Another team slash player that I think has a lot of upside without a lot of downside, it's going to be more in the near term, and that's Zion Williamson and the Pelicans. Yeah, sure, it'd be disappointing if they end up falling out of this a little bit and either get jumped for the, you know, get jumped for the nine seed by the Blazers or any other team that's playing well. But I think it would be pretty easy to write that off as just, hey, it's a weird, weird eight game little eight game little pocket. It didn't work out. But on the upside, it's a great opportunity for Zion and the Pelicans to show what they can do. They had this really unusual season where they never really got to put it all together, but when they looked healthier, they they did very well. And because even though the schedule isn't breaking the way that it could have, I mean, you could argue that the Pelicans are losers from this because they were, you know, like 538's model had them as the most likely eight seed if we had had the full thing, but they now have an opportunity to make their way in. And yes, the end game here is probably the best the best case scenario for the Pelicans is do really well, end up in the eighth seed in the playoffs, whether it comes from winning the playing games or not, and then get clobbered by the Lakers. But they become one of the stories of July of, of August, really, in the NBA. Yeah, um I, I think so. You know, trying to to parse out these winners and losers, you know, overall, uh, you know, other type factors is a pretty interesting uh, conversation. I mean, do we need to dig into how these teams have actually faced the virus itself? Um, You know, in terms of like, does that change their preparation? You know, obviously, Utah is one where they had to deal with it head on in March. 
Uh, now we're seeing Denver with Jokic abroad. And, and the positive Bolton. test of their organization today. Exactly, today, which could complicate travel plans. Yeah, I guess we're waiting to see on that. Um, you know, we, we mentioned Brooklyn and how they're going to sort of be a shell of their roster. Um, I'm just curious, like, how deep do we want to even go into that question? It feels ethically a little weird, too, doesn't it, right? I mean, it's just kind of a weird one to even ask, but... Um, you know, or even with the Lakers, you know, who we were talking about earlier, not having Bradley because he wants to stay at home. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a major um, rotation piece that they'll be left without. Uh, you know, I hate to do winners and losers of the coronavirus, but, you know, is it worth is it does it merit a mention? It does. It does merit a mention, but it is kind of hard to discuss. So I don't think we'll talk about it too much. And And also remember, Utah happened to be one of the teams that had the weird circumstance of having a player get injured during the hiatus. Like, it sounds like Bojan Bogdanovic's injury was during the hiatus, and so who knows if that would have happened the same. And Utah, yes, their best players are are on the younger side. But remember that Rudy Gobert is going to be extension eligible this offseason. Same with Donovan Mitchell. And Mike Connolly, assuming he plays on his ETO next year, they so like they really had this limited window where they would be at their best. And they'll be, you know, if they keep this together, and we'll see how the Mitchell... Gobert relationship evolves how their front office feels about this team but yeah this is a I mean the season did some of the damage on them in the first place but I mean Utah not getting their full complement for the remainder of this season is a real challenge it is um here here's one way I want to spin it for Utah though I mean this is a dicey situation where you have your two best players seemingly at odds over something that neither one of them could control you know with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. And when it was starting to look like Orlando might not happen, I really was worried for them because now you're kind of apart in a way, potentially for nine months, you know, and those kinds of negative feelings could linger and you come into next season and it's just sort of this big question mark of are these guys on the same page? Have resentments hardened? Have they really been able to put the pieces back together? I mean, that's a lot of time off. And, you know, I think the teams who weren't invited to Orlando are starting to work through those kinds of issues and really realizing what it means to not have their teams together for nine months. And not that they're panicking, but some of them are really pushing to be able to have group activities because otherwise you're at this major competitive disadvantage, right? But for Utah, the Orlando bubble in a way could actually be seen as a positive because at least they're going to be able to get an answer on are Donovan and Rudy going to be able to patch things up and make this right? Because if they go down there and things look okay, and maybe they have a little bit of success, maybe they even win a series, fantastic. If they get down there and those two guys are just not really talking, not interacting, they go out early, they don't have that same level of... um, just lockdown defense that we've seen from them over these last couple of years, just the chemistry is off or, or maybe the offense looks screwed up because of Bogdanovich, who you mentioned, that's very valuable for information for their front office to head into the next offseason because ultimately they have to th- think about trading Rudy, don't they? Uh, you know, he's coming up on a free agency, I believe, 2021. Uh, yes. You know, you, you don't want those things to define next year to carry all the way over through next season. So to me, they wind up being a, a bit of a winner here just because they can see what it looks like. They can. Yeah, they're definitely a winner that with the season is go- that there's going to be a resolution here because they get they get more information. And Dennis Lindsay is going to have a really hard job ahead of him for the next year plus because, yeah, Gobert and Gobert is remember, he is designated veteran eligible already because of the de- defensive players of the year awards. So that doesn't guarantee he's going to get it. I actually, Nate and I have brought up the idea that 
basically that allows you to go anywhere from 30% to 35. Maybe he could get something around the 30% range. But even though we don't know if Utah is going to do that. And we know that in another uh, that one of the other dynamics that could be in play here is if Utah doesn't want to give him that kind of contract, then that can create instability for for Gobert specifically. If he's just like, hey, I, I've earned this, they're not giving it to me. Maybe they're not going to give it to me at all. That could be really challenging. And he, it's not like a trade would help that because no other team can offer it. That's a part of the like I call it the Durant inspired elements of this that you can't like change teams and still get it, but. Yeah, I, I think that's that's an element, and that ties in with another team I wanted to mention, and that's Dallas. Well, hey, real, real quick before we do Dallas, sure. I just want to be on the record here. I would not pay Rudy that type of money. Same. I just wouldn't. I mean, he's a guy who I've really been uh, kind of caped for over the last five years in terms of being one of the most underappreciated star-level impact-making guys. I thought he should have been on the All-Star team a couple times before he made it. At this stage of his career, with where the game is headed, with what a team could look like if you centered all of its strategy around Donovan Mitchell, um, I would not pay Rudy Gobert that money if I was uh, if I was Utah. And they could wind up being a beneficiary of the NBA's um, cap crunch or, or financial changes here, where maybe there's not that huge major offer available to Rudy, you know, down the road because of that. I guess we'll have to see. But uh, for for me, I would be evaluating him with kind of a skeptical eye here this summer. What will scare the Jazz and pretty much any other team for giving Gobert good big money, even though he's a massive dude and that age can age well, depending on how you feel about injury risk, he will play significantly more of his next contract in his 30s than his 20s. Gobert uh, recently turned 28, so that means he will turn... 29 before next season before the uh the 21 22 season starts and that's going to be the first year on a new contract so does it team- and he, he's already slipping too right yeah, I mean, agreed I, to, I mean this to me he's not the same guy you know yeah and so i don't think my instinct is i wouldn't give gobert a 30 percent 30 percent of the salary cap moving forward so obviously more than that is off the table and Less than that, yeah. I mean, when you think of centers, I mean, the general kind of rule of thumb with centers is the elite guys are still worth a ton of money, even if it's more regular season than playoffs. And, and I think Gobert can can play in the playoffs. Fine. It just depends on who your opponent is and everything like that. I don't read too much into some of his struggles against the Warriors because there are no Warriors anymore. And I, I think that, but there, but once you fall behind that level, and this is kind of the Clay Capella problem, you could draw a bunch of you could you could throw out names for half an hour if you wanted to of players who are very good, who you're ne- never going to knock them for that, but aren't elite, aren't going to take you over that level either in the regular season or the playoffs, and the value of those guys goes off a cliff. And so this, the the beat that Gobert turns into that guy, then all of a sudden he's horrendously overpaid. And Utah, one of the other elements that they have to analyze here is, are they good enough right now to make the first couple of years worth it? And so I've used the Albert Pujols in baseball contract as an analogy here. <laughs> like basically because of the unusual structure of baseball contracts, every big, big, salary guy is going to be overpaid at the end of their career like that's just the way baseball works with the minor leagues and and contract lengths and structures so the question that front offices have to be asking and miguel cabrera is another example of this there are a bunch of them in, in, in baseball partially due to the weird structure of their contracts is are we getting enough for the first couple of years of this so that the end years even if they're terrible we still feel like we did okay and that could be they were the best player on a championship team 
they you know they won an MVP and they made us so much better than we would have been. And so it's not even like were they worth the money? It's just like can we afford to lose that? And I can imagine Utah, especially if they could get something in a trade, being like, "Yeah, we'd love to have him for the next four years, but we—he's not like he's not moving the needle enough for us now. And if it shifts that way, then we can't age." And I could see, I could see Dennis Lindsay in the Jazz front office going that direction. Absolutely. Yeah, that's where I would come down to. Um, anyway, you were talking about the Mavericks. Yes. So Dallas, to me, you know, seven seed—they are three losses behind the Rockets and the Thunder, but a. I think when they're when they're healthy, they're they're a very good team. They're, they have the best offense in the league this year, and because of the structural part that they're just behind a little bit, if they can move beyond where they are now, that will look great, and that would also presumably get them out of the against the Clippers and the Lakers, which would be huge. So I I, I don't think that this is going. And sure, if they can make it to the second or third round, that would be really impressive for for Luca and for Porzingis and Rick Carlisle because. The expectation is like for the Pelicans and a few other teams that the Mavericks' brightest days are ahead of them. So the brighter they are now, then that gives people more optimism moving forward. But the other element that Dallas has that I think could be really compelling here is they're kind of all pulling the same direction. Whereas you could see Utah with already losing one of their best players due to injury and maybe Oklahoma City, all it takes for them is one of those teams stumbling, if Dallas plays well, to make this a little bit more plausible to get to like the six or the five. Yeah, it's it's tricky with Dallas because they've had a few kind of sneaky, important losses from a health standpoint, you know? Yes. Um, and so that has me a little bit nervous. At the same time, the argument I was making on behalf of Houston's offense and just this idea that, you know, you can bank on Harden and he's going to carry you to a pretty high level. I think a lot of that same logic applies with Luca, right? Like if you're just saying, let's play five on five pickup in a gym in Orlando, I'm drafting Luca pretty early in that conversation, right? Uh, of all the players who are available in, in the NBA's pool and their chemistry uh, offensively was excellent all season. I think that they know their system. I don't think guys are going to be forgetting it, you know, during the three months off. And so, you know, to me, it's more a question of like, you know, do they have enough guys who can stay healthy um, and, you know, keep the pieces together. But, you know, you compare them to say Denver or a Utah. I mean, I like their chances against those teams better now than I did, you know, at the, uh, at the end of the regular season. Cause I thought a big part of the question for Dallas was just like, how does Luca hold up to playoff scrutiny, you know, going on the road to start, does that get into his head? You know, teams are going to throw these crazy junk defenses at him. Does he get the foul calls that he's expecting? Like all those kinds of typical questions for playmakers that we see the first time they go through it. I think they're a little bit lessened when you're down in Orlando and you don't have to worry about the crowd. And, you know, theoretically, the referees are going to be, uh, you know, calling things a little bit straighter because it's, there's not that uh, that that bias factor from the home court. So uh, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, Dallas has a nice shot against some of those mid-tier uh, Western Conference teams. But to me, I still think that they're far enough back from the, the elites in the West that, uh, you know, if they can win a series, that should be considered a monumental victory. Um, and if they don't, if they go out in the first round, I don't think there's any real shame in that either. Right. And I haven't done much looking beyond the first couple days of the schedule because I'm excited enough about that. I don't need to go further, but I want to mention one game, and that is Monday, August 10th, noon Pacific, 3 Eastern, they play the Utah Jazz. And that is late <laughs> enough. That is the sixth game of the of the seeding games for the Mavericks. So we'll have a clear idea of where things are. And Dallas has the real good fortune of playing the Suns twice, including their last game in Orlando. And I don't think the Suns are going to have a lot to play for at that point. I think they're more there to fill out the numbers than anything else. 
And so if they can get through that game and it looks like it's getting a little closer, it might end up being important. We'll, we'll have to see. They will have just come off playing the Clippers and the Bucks. So good luck with that. But I'm I'm fascinated. And like there's again, this is one of those we, we, we know things are going to be important, but we don't know exactly how long. But with with Dallas, I, I like what you said about how, like, yeah, if they if things don't work out, no harm, no foul. No, nobody's really going to see it too badly. And if things work out really well, then that's that's huge for them. And remember, Dallas sort of paralleling Toronto, not the same timeline necessarily, but maybe they're teams that are really trying to make a positive impression to get more high profile additions. And there there is going to be this really intriguing you and i've actually discussed this in the past i think we discussed this back in like february of the arms race of the exciting young teams to try to be a place that the stars in 21 and 22 consider and that you know you could make an argument for dallas there because they'll probably have enough space depending on where the cap goes new orleans could be in that conversation as well toronto can be there too clearly maybe you know i think boston's probably gonna be out of it because they're young players are playing well enough that they're getting paid but those situations are going to be really important and they're good the teams are going to get some really interesting and the players more accurately the pending free agent stars and all that are going to get more information on how those teams how viable they are right now but also how good their vibe is how whether that's a situation that they want to be a part of you know it's funny on this topic um I kind of wonder if we gave truth serum to the Phoenix Suns, how they would answer this, because I feel like Booker might be like the number one candidate in this entire field to finally get a taste of what life could be like in a winning organization when they're all down there in Orlando and start to wonder like, oh, do I need to start coming up with a team up scenario? Do I need to try to force a trade or or something else like that? Right. Because um, he's been a guy where they just really haven't had a ton of progress as an organization during his four or five years down there. You can imagine him plugging in as a second or third type guy on a, a lot of winning teams and sure his scoring number goes down but maybe his effectiveness and his ability to win goes up significantly you just wonder is phoenix ever going to be committed enough from an ownership standpoint to really put a, a top tier product on the court and now he's going to be down in the middle of what people are what calling tamper palooza and everything else i just gotta wonder like uh, from a risk reward standpoint does phoenix kind of net out net negative here on this one by being included if it winds up uh, giving Devin Booker some ideas about his future. They could, and there's another huge problem here for the for the Suns with Booker, but also the Wizards with Bradley Beal, in that they went from being pretty bad teams to being the worst teams in Orlando. And so <laughs> now it's like you don't they don't get to play the Timberwolves with Booker's friends Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell. They don't get to play the Cavs or the Pistons after they, you know, kind of looked like they're they're just kind of a, a lost team right now and that's fine you know like they can be there and so now all of a sudden the wizards go from having some gimmies to having no gimmies whatsoever so does bradley beal just does that that two weeks of just getting your butt kicked almost every single game does that beat him down does he start to think well we'll see what happens with john wall next year but thankfully i got my money maybe i start to make indications that i'm gonna leave and try to get into a good situation sooner rather than later that's probably 21 for him rather than like you know or sorry that's probably 2022 for him rather than 21 but i am interested in how all that plays out well the funny thing is uh they don't have any gimmies danny except for when they play each other which is the first game for them 
<laughs> I don't know if the NBA set that up intentionally of like, hey, we're going to have a soft launch for the Wizards and the Suns, but I think they play each other in their first games. Yeah, amazingly, a game that is not on NBA TV, it is on, I think it's just going to be local in League Pass. Uh, Appropriate. If, if, uh, if a tree falls in Orlando's bubble, does it make a sound? Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? I think we've covered a lot of ground. No, I think we hit uh, most of the major ones. Let me just ask for your pick, though. I mean, I'm sticking with the Clippers, um, and, I, and I'll stick with the Bucks, despite the hesitations that I mentioned earlier. Um, but I, I think the Clippers are, are well-positioned to be viewed as the favorites. I know the, the odds makers don't seem to, to view them that way, but who do you have coming out of this, assuming they can crown a champion? I think the Bucks are the most likely champion because their path to, through the Eastern Conference is easier and the Clippers have to deal with the Lakers and the Lakers have to deal with the Clippers. But I I think that I probably would favor well I would, I would favor as of right now probably favor the Clippers over the Bucks in a in a series and it's a whole neutral site series. So I think it's going to be I think it's going to be Clippers and Bucks especially I mean you brought up the, the the hardship for the Lakers it's also really good news for the Clippers that the that series against the Lakers if it ends up coming to pass the Western Conference Finals in Orlando is much more favorable to them than it would have been otherwise and if if that's the series if it comes down to comes down to that I think I I think I'd go Clippers but the thing to remember about Milwaukee is yes they did lose to the Raptors in the playoffs last year a that Raptors team doesn't exist anymore and remember how roughshod the Bucks are running over this. Like there is the analogy here, and it, it might be to the fourteen fifteen Warriors, where we spent a long time wondering whether that team was for real, and then and they had some they had some struggles in the playoffs. I mean that remember they went down to the Grizzlies. There were a few other a few other bumps in the road for that for that Warriors team, but then they made it out relatively clean. And then so it was like okay, deserving champion, and then they ended up you know going. 73 and 9 the next year. I'm not saying the Bucks are going to do that, but that we might just be underappreciating how great the Bucks have been for the last year and a half and that teams that good generally win championships. No, I'm with you on that, man, and that's why I feel like I'm so annoyed on their behalf that yes. this whole thing got shook up because they deserve to have that crowning achievement. Can I just make one final unrelated point to anything else we've talked about? Um and it's about Zion. It's incredible that we've got a teenager basically headlining opening night. Uh, the league, after taking months of kind of questions about why are you expanding the field to 22 teams? And, you know, it became clear pretty quickly in that conversation that like Zion's ability to draw television ratings is like central to the NBA's, you know, profit plan here or the revenue plan here. And so they basically just had to have him on TV no matter what. And I just kind of wondered how would the NBA play that? Uh, you know, from a PR standpoint after taking so many questions and they ultimately decided drop all the pretenses. Who cares? We're going to put Zion on the first night right in front of uh, LeBron and Kawhi. That's how we're going to reintroduce the sport to fans that haven't had it for four months. I thought it, I, I kind of admired how brash it was from the NBA and just kind of, I don't know if you want to call it shameless or whatever, but just very straightforward and a blunt move by them. And I just think it says so much about Zion. I mean, the, the kid, uh, any time that I've spent around him, he just he comes off um, just like another guy. You know, he doesn't have that superstar level, uh, you know, kind of looking down on people vibe to him whatsoever. A lot of times it's kind of this aw shucks or this just kind of like trying to wrap his mind around how quickly his life has changed since he was basically in prom what two you know two years ago at high school and now he here he is as kind of like the figurehead of the NBA's return 
it's just incredible. It's an awful lot of pressure for him to be under. He faced it when he came back against the Spurs and, and had that huge flourish in the second half that was uh, so tantalizing. But I just think that's one other thing to kind of stop and, and remind ourselves here is that like this guy is in a very, very unique spot for a player his age uh, with this level of expectations and visibility. And to me, he's just handling it perfectly. Yeah. I think that's very true, and there, yeah, as we said, there's a, there's a lot of upside, very little downside. I kind of wish they'd had a different opponent for game one. That maybe maybe they could have done Ja versus Zion because that's that's on, <laughs> I think that's on like later in the week, but it'll still be a lot of fun. I'm excited for it to be there, and yeah, that's I know what I'll be doing a month from today, assuming assuming everything goes as planned, and I'm excited I'm excited for that to happen. Oh, me too. I can't wait. I hope it I hope it all comes together. You know, I can't wait to see what the players come up with on the social justice side either. I think that could be an amazing opportunity for them over the course of two or three months to not pay lip service, but to really impact, you know, meaningful change. We're already seeing it with some of the voting initiatives that LeBron, the Atlanta Hawks are up to. I think it's so smart. The timing right before the election is is uh, major as well. So you add it all up. You know, I, I think the NBA and, and basketball has a, a great stage here. And uh, I'm, you know, crossing my fingers every single night, hoping that it comes off uh, and everybody's able to make it through this thing healthy and safe. Absolutely. And thank you so much again for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Danny. Take care, man. Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at the Washington Post. You can listen to him on the Open Four podcast and the Greatest of All Talk podcast. And if you want to subscribe to that one, greatestofalltalk.com. So happy that that's doing well. And you can also, of course, follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love having him on and... We're a month away. I mean, it's pretty exciting for me, I'm guessing for a lot of you, to have NBA basketball hopefully in the offing at that point. And it'll be coming fast at that point. I was looking at the schedule while Ben and I were talking and just realizing how many games there are going to be per day. So I'm pretty excited about that. A little bit daunting, but mostly excited. And, of course, Real Jam Radio will be there. Lots of ways you can support the show. Leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. Really do appreciate that. Apple Podcasts, whatever else it is. You can even leave one both places if you want. Word of mouth, if you like a specific episode or the show in general, that can be a big help. Subscribing, downloading every episode, that's so important because this show will never come out at a normal time. It will never be released on Wednesday mornings or anything like that. That's just not the nature of it with my availability and my guest availability. But the most important thing you can do for this show and any of the Hasm is to check out our sponsors. For this episode that is Bet Online. use the Podcast One promo code to tell them that you came from us and to get yourself a sign-up bonus if you have a new account, which is absolutely awesome. You can also check out my other work uh, for The Athletic. I'm doing my own off-season preview series. Series. Uh, you can usually see those. You can see those on my athletic page. And then I'm also doing a collaborative series with Seth Partnow, Dave Dufour, and Sam Vicini, covering similar ground right now. But they will eventually separate a little bit. But it's really fun because I think of them as different sides of the same coin. Mine is more, not surprisingly, salary cap, free agency, transaction focused, and the other one it's a lot on the roster they already have and where they're going. And I, I really do enjoy doing them in concert. And I think that that you'll enjoy them as well. Also dunked on. We're still two times a week now. We'll ramp up when we get closer to this, but we've done a lot of interesting topics recently, including potential stars that we're not, that no one's seeing coming. So like basically guys that have maybe higher variants or some, some real superstar potential, which was a really fun one to do. And then we did a Patreon mailbag, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue, if you want to support that. 
If you want to lay out any feedback for this show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to share that with me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I will try to send a response. I don't always. I'm not as good at that, and I apologize, but I do read everything. It goes to a specific place. As I said, Real Jam Radio will be back next week and every week moving forward, as, as we have been for all of these years now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.